there is confirmation. Okay, cold football day today. For those of you on the internet, very cold, lots of football. It's uh, pretty much an internet lecture today. January 19, 2020, lecture discussion number 89 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, and Ecclesiastes with a modicum of Judges 19, 20, and 21, a driblet, if you will, and then a little piece of the second law of thermodynamics with quantum uncertainty, fastened to it, uh, fixed perhaps would be a better word, that's what we're doing today, we think. And you might immediately ask, and you'd be wise to do so, how is the state or the level of entropy connected with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle? I know you were thinking that as you were in the parking lot wondering if you should go home and watch football. The Packers are being wiped out. So you made the right decision. Now watch them come back and all the hate mail I'll get from Wisconsin. But how is it that entropy... uh, it connects to uncertainty, and more specifically, Ezekiel 28 and Genesis 1 through Genesis 3. I say that a lot. I say Genesis 1. This is where we are, too, today. Judges 19, 20, 21, Genesis 19, Genesis 13, 13. But how, how is Ezekiel 28 and Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3? Connected. I say that, and I say it badly, because I'm also going to say Genesis 1, 1 through 3. See what happens? And people complain that I'm not specific enough. So there is a Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 1, uh, 3, and Ezekiel 28 connects to all three of those first three chapters of Genesis. But then uh, I have this specificity, if you will, of Genesis 1, 1 through 3, where... Uh, It describes a high entropy condition. Are you all aware of what I mean by high entropy condition? I'm talking about uh, tohu babahu, right? Might be an O. I'm not sure. That is Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And that describes a high entropy condition, which is then struck by an outside energy. This high entropy condition, the formlessness, the darkness, the water, uh, the chaos, as that word describes. And this this word, as you know, uh, is rendered in the Hebrew as a divine judgment. And that is the word being uh, translated as uh, chaos in, in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. So the implication is, is that this is a divine judgment. In any event, I have a high entropy condition and it is hit by an outside energy source, the light of life, which is John eight twelve, And it causes unimaginable complexity when that light hits that darkness. Uh, the high entropy is converted. It's transformed into low entropy. And as you know, a closed system in randomness will continue towards disorder. It'll go further into instability. It'll have more randomness, not less. So to repeat this a little bit, does Genesis 1, 1 through 3, portray entropy? In this case, high entropy. And if you were to conclude in the affirmative, then the inevitable flurry of questions now are going to hit you in the mouth. 
our forehead. Pick one. That's not as much fun as this. And, and they're going to do the same thing if you said no. If you said that, and people argue this all over theological circles. They say that Genesis 1, 1 through 3 does not describe high entropy. It describes low entropy, which means complexity. High entropy means disorder, randomness. So which one do you say it is? It's dark, it's covered with water. Is that low entropy or high entropy? That's the question. In any event, how did the earth become as described in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3? How did it get this way? You've heard me ask these questions many times with this dark, flooded standing that it now has. How does it get there? A while back, we began this, and I spelled it right, Vavahu, good for me. We began this subject, Tohu Vavaho. It's divine judgment. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, it's divine judgment. So it's divine judgment here. This is absolute, utter darkness. So is utter darkness a created occurrence? If so, why did God create absolute darkness? Would God create absolute darkness? Yes or no. It's pretty binary. But in other words, is darkness complexity? Because complexity would be low entropy. Or is it disorder? Is it randomness, chaos? That would be high entropy. It's formless and void. Is that high entropy or low entropy? You have already decided, haven't you? But think, trust me, the theological community has yet to resolve this. We end up with this question, does God create high entropy? Does God create formlessness and void and chaos and randomness? Does he create that? Did he create absolute darkness? Again, yes or no. All of you who say yes, go over to that side. There's nobody over there. There's somebody. I'm sorry. Few are over there. And here's where I insert, um, well, let me finish this question. Does God create high entropy? If he doesn't create high entropy, how did it happen at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3? And, of course, again, divine judgment. How many more questions do we have? And here is where I insert the resurrecting of a human body from dust as a prime example of an outside energy source returning, transforming a high entropy state to a low entropy state inside of a closed system. So I'm comparing the resurrection of you and me to Genesis 1, 1 through 3. I have energy hitting a high entropy condition and any of the, and what is the energy that resurrects you that's a bad question isn't it because it's not a what it's a who in addition the reinstalling of the breath of life which is consciousness into a body that's restored from dust 
that's energy into a closed system. That's what that is. That's a smaller closed system, and that's the whole point. Closed system is the big deal here. If you have a closed system, entropy always prevails. You have to have something to arrest entropy. There must be energy into the system. If the system can't be, has no energy source, the earth has an energy source, doesn't it? What is it? Well, physicists would say it's the sun. It's that nuclear fusion device up in the sky there, actually in the in the cosmology, which is more responsible, just as an aside, for uh, temperature variability, hairspray or a nuclear fusion device? I'm, I'm at a loss. I use hairspray because that's how this whole unfalsifiable premise began. In any event, if I have a closed system, I need energy to hit it or it will go into high entropy. That is the second law of thermodynamics, or one part, part, part of it. So I am saying that your, that dead body that is dust is a closed system in high or low entropy and it gets hit with energy and it becomes uh, low entropy. It becomes complex. So I'm saying the resurrection of a human being, a living being, that is energy into a closed system. And it is within a larger closed system. But nothing really is a closed system, is it? Because, again, what is the energy is a bad question, intentionally bad, badly worded question. It's who is the energy? And is the energy, is he, is that who omnipresent, which of course he says he is. So body resurrection has a direct relationship to what occurred in Genesis chapter 1. That's my big uh, issue of page 2 here. Life erupting from darkness is body resurrection. Life erupting from the dust. Anyway, I wanted to revisit and refresh that subject today, which for reasons that may be unclear so far, uh, that's my methodology as you have come to recognize. Anyway, another subject that we also recently covered was Daniel 12:4. So I'm repeating a little bit and Daniel 10. That's where we've been. Actually, yeah, 12:4 and Daniel 10. We also went to Daniel 12:9. And here's what it says. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Close the book. Close the book. See where I went there for you? Close up and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Not knowledge of scripture, but knowledge of the created. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. That's an incredible verse. It has great value to you. Who says I don't do applicational sermons? Today is one. Almost everybody says that. But from this we learn that the book of Daniel is understood by the wise only. What does that mean to you? It's a big thing, really. 
Daniel 12, 11 through 13 follows those words with the daily sacrifice being taken away, the abomination of desolation occurring, the 75-day interval, and the blessing of the 1335th day. So I have close up the book, only the wise will understand, and then it says the sacrifice is going to be taken away, the abomination that makes desolate is going to happen, then we have the 75-day interval, and then we uh, then there is the blessing for those who make it to the 1335th day. And those, of course, those four are all tribulational. They're all tribulational events, occurrences. They're time marks. And the question again is, who will understand them? Only the wise. The context of all of that is that those people that will understand those four things are the purified and that are made white and refined of Daniel 12.10. Who is going to understand those four things, be in the tribulation, and have be purified and made white? Who are those people? For today, I want you to focus on the definition of wise. One is wise who understands the closed, sealed-up book of Daniel. Applicational sermon. So what is required to understand the closed, sealed book of Daniel? Just really quickly, note that the book of Revelation, the New Testament complement to the book of Daniel is the book of Revelation. And Revelation 12.10 says this, John is instructed not to seal up the book of Revelation. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. That's what John has said. Don't seal it. Daniel, you seal it. John, you don't. And they absolutely feather together these two prophecies. One is sealed, one is unsealed. Obviously, we need to know the difference. Why is this so? From whom is the book of Daniel sealed? I gave, I answered that question already. Did you notice? I said abomination and desolation sacrifices will be ended the 75-day interval and 1335th day. Answers the question. Who is it that the book of Daniel is sealed from? Is it a Jew, a Gentile, or both? But what is understanding as it applies to Daniel 12, 9 through 10? That's where we come through, I hope. How much understanding is understanding and understandability? In other words, you can have understanding, but do you have understandability? Do you understand very much? What's your level of understanding? The prophecy of Daniel is overwhelming. It's crammed with information. A lifetime is not enough to gather and catalog and solve the data that's given in Daniel. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. All the, if you tried to list it, and men have tried. I have their books. They diagram the book of Daniel, every piece. Clarence Larkin did Daniel, Revelation, and Ezekiel by himself. It's incredible what he did. I can't even begin to. There was a man of amazing wisdom. And he didn't get it done. But he went as far as anyone I've ever found. There's so much information, so much data. In that regard, it is comparable, comparable to Apostle John's revelation. The two of them side by side is how it should be done. Theologians have 
laid Daniel and Revelation next to each other for centuries, appropriately so. They realized, wait a minute, I've got Daniel, and Revelation will help me understand it, and Daniel will help me understand Revelation. And Martin Luther thought that Revelation should have been thrown out of the Bible. It made no sense to him. He didn't believe it was inspired. All he had to do was read Daniel and Revelation side by side. Martin Luther did not have wisdom. He did not understand the book of Daniel. Only the wise will understand Daniel. Who are they? Scholars have quickly recognized that the books of Daniel and Revelation were both necessary to understand either. And just as Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel Ezekiel form a triad, Daniel, Revelation, and Joel, you can make the case that they're also a triad. One is, of course, common to both. So to understand Daniel, to be wise, one must understand Revelation. See how hard this is going to be? The sealed book requires the unsealed book. Which lends one to ask this, I hope. Is the time of the beginning of the end that is at hand, is the, is the beginning of the end, is that, did that begin with the writing of the book of Revelation? Or if you wish, how long is the time of the end? How long does it last? Anyway, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They would not defile themselves with Babylonian food. They wouldn't eat it. Where am I now? They refused to eat it. It was put in front of them. You and I might find it tempting. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would not eat it. Where am I in the Bible? You might be tempted. I would not be tempted. I'm starting to get to the point where I'm tempted by walnuts. That's how miserable my life is now. Ooh, walnuts. Today's walnut day. It's getting awful. They would not eat Genesis 3. They were not tempted to eat at Genesis 3. Their names mean God is my judge, as Daniel. The Lord is grace. There's a doctrinal statement, Hananiah. Who is like the Lord, Mishael? And the Lord is my helper, Azariah. That is what they were named by God. They're named by God. Did I mention this? They're named by God. And they would not eat. And they, the four of them, were renamed. What were they renamed? All of you know the silly little song in Sunday school, I'm sure. Okay, maybe nobody knows it. But most of you do. They were renamed. Why were they renamed? They had names. God is my judge. The Lord is grace. Who is like the Lord? The Lord is my helper. They were renamed. Ask why. And they were again named by God. Adam portrayed this in a way in Genesis 2.19. He names each, let me repeat that, he names each living soul. 
Genesis 2.19. Christ tells us that he's going to name us in Revelation 2.17. So I have first Adam, I have second Adam, or last Adam. Last Adam named those four men. And somebody renamed them. Who renamed them? And ask why they're renamed. And then wonder what is going on with the church that calls them by their Babylonian names almost universally. And that alone is months of study right there. But you can't leave out Adam naming each and every animal. It says that, Genesis 2.19. That's a lot of animals. Why does he name each and every one a different name? Why does Christ give us a, a new name in 2.17 Revelation? And what does this have to do with the Babylonians naming these, renaming these four men? It's months of study. And I, I, I tell you, it doesn't bode well for the contemporary church to cast out the names that God has given and put in the Babylonian names. So anyway, we got those four guys and they won't eat. Good for them. Genesis 3, they're not tempted. And they say, okay, give us water and vegetables. And you give these other young men Babylonian delicacies and we'll have a test. We'll have a contest between the vegetables and the water. Which team am I on? I All I get is well, I get walnuts, almonds. You know that peanuts are a vegetable, right? Yeah. Mm. They grow underground. They're very good for protein. I have peanuts. Anyway, where was I? I forget because I'm old now. Water and vegetables were tested against Babylonian food for 10 days. What's the obvious question? What was the test? The test was, is we're going to let you have, you're not eating our Babylonian food. You must eat it. And they said, no, we're not going to eat it. Well, then we'll have to kill you, essentially. And they said, well, how about we have a test? You get let us eat vegetables and water. And you guys eat this stuff for 10 days and we'll see who's doing best. So what's the question that hits you in the forehead right there? How long can you go without food and not show any ill effects? 10 days doesn't seem like much of a test to see who's going to be the healthy one, right? Why not 100 days? Why not 500 days? But the test is only 10 days. That's probably insignificant or not. At the end of the 10 days, there was a dramatic difference. How can that be? There was a dramatic difference between the four men of God who all had God's name and the, all of the young men who ate the Babylonian food. Four were eating God's food and the others were eating poison. Babylonian food. What's food a symbol of? But it only lasted 10 days. And, and the people went, okay, wait a minute. This is a problem. These guys are not doing well. They've been eating Babylonian food their whole lives. But all of a sudden, in that 10-day period, it looked bad for them. And they aborted the test. Stopped. It was clear that the ones eating God's food were, were living and the ones eating the Babylonian food were dying. 
How did that happen in a 10-day period? Work that out on your own. Obviously, God himself demonstrated the principle that only the wise would understand the book of Daniel. The point is, yea, a point is that knowing the information is not equal to the understanding of the meanings of the information. Notice I put that plural. There are meanings to those 10 days, those four guys, that food. What are the meanings? You can list this is what happened. You can even say what happened in Sunday school. But if you don't know what it means, then you have no wisdom. Not none. None. You have a little bit. You're getting started. But note the plural. All the meanings are here. Chapter, chapter 1 of the book of Daniel concludes with Daniel continuing to the first year of King Cyrus. And I don't know if you know that. I hope you do. Cyrus of Persia, Koresh. You might remember the Branch Davidians. David Koresh. That was killed by the FBI, I believe. I'm not sure. It might have been ATF. But in any event, the guy called himself David Koresh because he wanted to be David Cyrus. King David, King Cyrus. That's what he was calling himself. So he had enough understanding to know who King Cyrus was. And know who King David is. But Daniel continues until King Cyrus. King Cyrus of Persia, which is Iran. King Cyrus overwhelms the Babylonian Empire. Defeats it. And he issues a proclamation. He does so in the second or Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. It's called the Proclamation of Cyrus. Do you know who called himself Koresh? Have you heard me say this lately? Harry Truman did. Harry Truman was apparently in a meeting. I don't know if I've told you this already. I might have, but he's in a meeting. And somebody stands up and says, ex-president or former president Truman was one of the men who made the nation of Israel recognized in the world, who constructed, if you will, the nation of Israel. One of the men. Something went off. Bing. Okay. Okay. Here does it again. It's, is it a metronome? It's kind of cool. It looks, sounds like a middle C to me. Yeah. Yeah, I use it as a drone for my trumpet playing, which makes everybody happy. No one is happy with my trumpet playing. But in any event, this man said President Truman is one of the men who caused the nation of Israel and fulfilled that prophecy. And President Truman, as the story goes, stood up and said he was upset about that. And the guy recognized him and said, uh, President Truman, uh, why are you? Because he was visibly angry. If you, I was alive during President Truman. Uh, at the, I was Eisenhower was the president when I was a young boy, and I knew who Truman was. Everybody did because of what he did in World War II. In any event, uh, Truman said, "I'm not one of the men. I'm Koresh." In other words, he equated himself with Cyrus. He understood the proclamation of Cyrus, what Cyrus did, and he said it was equal. He, what he did for Israel was equal. I believe he's absolutely right about that. You should study what Harry Truman did for the nation of Israel. It is amazing. And he knew. He knew what the prophecies of Israel were. But anyway, 
The book of Daniel can uh, conclude chapter one of the book of Daniel says that Daniel made it all the way to King Cyrus and he made it all the way to the proclamation of Cyrus, which is in Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. And it is identical word for word with Ezra one, one through two. So if you look up proclamation of Cyrus, you see it at the end of Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra. They're identical. In case you were wondering what Daniel and Jeremiah had to do with the proclamation of Cyrus. So that's there in the book of Daniel. Just take that. Forget about the four guys and the food. That's a, a job. Just go with the proclamation of Cyrus. One sentence, Daniel continued to King Cyrus. Just that one sentence. Again, Daniel has incredible detail, as does the book of Revelation. But the wise will know, they will understand what it all means. Not just what it says, what it means. And therefore we've got this self, uh, self-examination that is assured for all of us. If you know the meanings of the book of Daniel, then you're one of the wise. If not, then we quote John Wayne. He said, well, life is hard. And it's a whole lot harder if you're stupid. And unfortunately, the church never had the book of Daniel until very recently. And now it does, but very few know the book of Daniel or understand what's there. The 70th week of Daniel, just the mathematics alone are so astonishing. The 490s that are inside, the the 77s, seven 70s, or four, never mind. The four 490s, seven times seven, there's 490, there are four 490s. Now, so you have to know how that all works to get there, but it's there. That's in Daniel. Anyway, reciting the parts of Daniel is not wisdom. Learning why the parts are given and, and the order in which they're given. There's an order to them. Those are the, what truths they're forming. That's wisdom. Rote recitation is not wisdom. Expl- explanation is wisdom. Okay, That'll all fit together here in a minute. Last Sunday, i got to put this on the board because there's so much of it. Oh. Last Sunday, we, by we, I mean me, we went into Judges 19. And if you were here, and it's actually 19, 20, and 21, but all we did was 19. And that, if you were here, you, you might remember I had four or five letters, I, uh, and I read a piece of each one of them, and we had this discussion on angelic limitations. And the fact that they are judged by fire, they are called ministers of fire, but yet they're judged by fire. And how does that fit together? So we had this discussion on angels. And there are physical limitations. Though they're physical, they have limitations, angelic limitations. And the fact that fire is, they are described as fire, and yet somehow fire also 
uh, judges them. So let's make a line there. So that was one of the things that we dealt with. And that, of course, takes us to the lake of fire, which is uh, a Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2 discussion. So I have Genesis 1, 1, and I have Genesis 1, 2. Whenever you talk about the lake of fire, then that's what you're into. Now, I, my position is that this is a 315 construction, but you're still talking about Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, which is where we began the lecture today, isn't it? Is that high entropy, which means randomness? Did you decide? Is one one describing and uh, one 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 through one two describing randomness, chaos, or is it low entropy? When was darkness created? Is darkness even created? Is it a created thing? Utter darkness, as the Bible describes it. So that is a discussion. Genesis one one and one two, and something I'll explain momentarily. Momentarily is a relative term. And then we got into Leviticus 16:17, which is the same as John. Uh, let me make sure I get it right for you. John 20:17. All of this goes into the lake of fire and back to whether or not there's entropy here. What kind of entropy? And eventually we go from John 20:17, Leviticus 16:17 to Hebrews 9:23. Ah, I think it stops at 28. And when you talk about Hebrews 9:23, that's Mary Magdalene, do you remember the discussion on Mary Magdalene? Why could Christ, why does Christ say to her, don't touch me? And then immediately after that, he says to Thomas, trust, you can touch me. That was one of the questions, and, um, and I answered it uh, last week. And Mary Magdalene and Thomas come through Hebrews 9:23 through 26. And all of that takes us back to Genesis 2:7, which is the breath of life being installed into the body and bringing complexity and life. That's the interaction of the breath of life, the soul inserted into the closed system, which is the body, the mind, brain, consciousness, spirit, whatever you wish. They're all the same. And there's another buzzer of some... Oh, that's the rice buzzer? Okay. And all of that, if you were here last week, I keep saying it because I can't remember anybody. That brings up Wilder Penfeld, Field, sorry. And that uh, the Wilder Penfield question as to whether energy can come into the mind from an outside source after physical death. Because if energy comes into the mind, I'm sorry, comes into the brain, if can energy come into the mind after physical death? Because the brain is dead, so energy has to come to the mind. So I have this energy that comes into the body and causes life, causes consciousness, results in the mind, results in animation, results in all of this incredible complexity that is the human body, but also adds the mind action, as Ben Feld, uh, Field described it. Because you, you need to understand, and you really do need to understand, you need to make sure your children understand that the brain alone cannot account, cannot accomplish the work, it cannot... It cannot be responsible for the functions of the mind. The brain cannot do it alone. And that led this brilliant man, Wilder Penfield, 
the greatest neuroscientist, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest in history. That led Penfield to conclude that man's being has to be two distinct elements. And that is exactly what Genesis 2-7 says. says that, listen, there's a body and God must put something into it. He has to add the energy. Penfield went on to take that and said, what provides the energy to the mind when the body does not? The body appears to add energy to the mind, but does it really? What does it get for source? That's right, walnuts. That's how it works. Lots of walnuts. They look like brains. Did you notice? So you eat the walnuts because they look like brains and your brain becomes what? Fantastic. At least that's the theory. (laughs) I'm convincing no one. Penfeld recognized at physical death the body no longer provides energy for the mind, but he knew that the mind could not die. Consciousness cannot die. Death is a physical process. So what provides the energy? And that was the letter from Daniel. Turns out, where's Daniel from? Texas? Yay, we finally got it right. Daniel wanted to know about Psalm 19, Psalm 104, along with Wendy. And we have Valjo in there somewhere, and Deborah. All those people wrote letters, and I covered them. But that's how we got to where we were, in case you missed all that fantastic fun. But Penfield concluded that man's being is two distinct elements, just exactly as Genesis 2-7 reveals. And, and so does Genesis uh, 120, 121, 124, 130, and 2.19. Let me put that back on. He named, Adam named each and every living being. Each and every one had a different name. That makes him a type of Christ there, Revelation 2.17. Which is why I have been pounding away. This is so important, especially, again, for your children to know. If they have no understanding of the metaphysical or the mental property or the soul, then what do they think they are? They think they're physical only. And if they're physical only, then what do they think happens to them at death? Yeah, and if they think that, they become dysfunctional almost immediately. 2-7 is critical information, but you have to be able to explain it. Not just recite it. Reciting's fine. And that's why I've been pounding away at Ecclesiastes 12-7, because that's where the spirit of the breath of life must be given. It has to be given. He must give it. And the only one who can give it is the only one who has it. He is the only one that has life. His life must be given. And that is a fundamental principle. 2-7 of Genesis is the crucifixion. He must give his life. That's why he gives his life. Because he must give his life. The only way you can get life is for him to give it to you. He's the only one that has it. And that's depicted at 2-7 and at the crucifixion. That's a fundamental of scripture. And all of those lead to the discussion that now is Hebrews 9. Down here. Or he put it there. So this is uh, Val, Joe, and Susie. In case you're looking for somebody to blame. So let's read this. More incredible information. Okay, I'll start at 922. And according to the law, almost all things, notice what it says, 
according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. What's the obvious question? If it's almost, what are the things that are not purified with blood? Almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies... Holy mackerel, honey child. The copies... That. The copies, yes, Hebrews 9, 22, 21 through 28 is really where I'm going, probably. Let me do that. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Who, who did that? And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Almost all things are purified with blood. What are, what are things? Well, I have living beings, I have living things, and I have inanimate things. So I have living and inanimate, non-living. Immediately we need to define what these things are that, are, that have to be purified with blood and things that, that uh, are not purified with blood. We've got to define things, in other words. And Genesis chapters 1 and Genesis chapter 2 contribute mightily to the definition of things. Again, living beings are things. We are living things. John 1, 3. All things were made through Christ and without him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1.15, for by Christ all things were created and that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Him in those verses is Christ Jesus, the I am of Exodus 3.14 and John 8.24. So what on the earth is invisible? Something's invisible on earth. What is it? This is where we get back to the heart. Remember the heart stuff? They erased my beautiful heart drawing. By them, I mean, yeah, them. Thank you. I see the the minutes. What's invisible? Life is invisible. Consciousness, the soul, the mind. That's the invisible. Notice that the copy, I answered a question. Everybody cheer. I did that weeks ago. Notice, thank you, wife, in the front row. Now that the copies of the things in the heavens who serve as the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. That's Hebrews 8.5. As Moses was instructed, must be purified. Moses was instructed that you make copies of the heavenly things that have to be purified by blood. And you put them on earth. So the things that Moses was told to make are copies. Of something that's in heaven that needs what? To be purified. That is what? I hope you see that. If 
not just keep to the forefront that the heavens, that heaven, the angels, they have the original. Moses was given the copies. They have the original, the true altar. They have the true temple. They have the holy of holies. They have the ark of the testimony. That which is on earth is a copy. It's a shadow. We have people looking for the copy of the ark of the covenant. That's in heaven. But those things in heaven have to have what to them? Let me read it again. It's necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified. 8.5 says that the things in heaven have to be purified. Let me read 8.5 again for you. For if he were on earth, he would, he, he would have, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. All things have to be purified in heaven, or be purified with blood. The copies of these things in heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, Christ had to make a better sacrifice in heaven for the heavenly things of which the earthly things are copies. It's necessary that the originals in heaven be purified with blood by the high priest himself. The high priest, not a copy, a portrait of the high priest. That'd be Aaron, but the high priest. So now we have the obvious the most obvious of the obvious questions. What caused the heavenly temple to become defiled? That Christ had to go there. Of course, that takes you to these, doesn't it? Leviticus, this and that's Thomas and Mary again. What caused that to happen? Is that Genesis 1 1 and 1 2? Is that Ezekiel 28? Is that Isaiah 14? Is that Genesis 3.15? Can't be Genesis 3.15 that happened afterwards. But Genesis 3.15 will reflect on what happened to cause the heavenly things and to have, to have need of Christ to come himself. What does he use to cleanse them? It says so. Blood. What blood does he use? Where did he get it? So those are the ones, 1, 1, 1, 2, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 8. They leap into your basket as a unit. And as you may have already concluded, Daniel 10 and Daniel 12 are also explained by Hebrews 9, 23 and Hebrews 8, 5 and John 20, 17 and Leviticus 16, 17. That's why we're doing Daniel 10 and Daniel 12. What's Daniel 10 and Daniel 12? I have angels fighting with angels. What caused that? Is that the same thing that caused Genesis 1-1? Genesis 1-2? How does that work? Not really 1-1, mostly 1-2, but 1-1 has to go with 1-2 because it's a time mark. Why do angels fight with angels? Why do the heavenly things of which Moses just made copies? Now, I shouldn't say just but they're copies. Why do the originals have to be cleansed by the high priest? And if you choose the fall of the arch cherub to explain this, in a hundred years here, the Hebrews believe, I think that's accurate.
reasonably accurate. Certainly not trillions and gazillions and gigabillions of time that's necessary for one thing about evolution to even be remotely impossible. I don't care how many years you give evolution, it'll never be possible mathematically, and they know it. They just hate Genesis 2-7. I might run a little long today, young lady, so sorry. Uh, delay what? Yes, I think I, I got six, seven minutes and I didn't start at five o'clock. Are you going by this clock or by what's left? Oh, okay, then I better hurry up. Doggone it. But if you choose to put the arch cherub, the anointed angel, Satan, that's who he is, as the cause, the reason, that's not really good language theologically, post-resurrection. In other words, it, no, I said that wrong. If you think that that's Satan that causes that, Ezekiel 28, then Christ, post-resurrection, resurrection, went up and cleansed that, the holy Originals, And then he descended, and that's where you get Mary and Thomas. And this applies, uh, now applying that to Daniel 10 and Daniel 12 and Revelation 12 and John 13, which is the sop, Satan entering Judas, Matthew 4, which is the, uh, and Luke 4 and Mark 1, which is the wilderness and the conflict between Satan and Christ and Moses' body, June 9. All of those things fit because we need to deal with what's happened in heaven. We have to, Christ had to go there with his blood and cleanse the heavenly items that of which the earth are just, or Moses' is just a copy. And I could go on and hopefully you've gotten a point, yay, a point. Moses is, is the one. Moses is the one to whom the secrets of the heavenly temple were given. God told him, make replicas of these things. Make them earthly. And Satan wanted to take his body those two are connected. I'm putting Jude 9 along with side by side Hebrews 8, uh, 5 and 9, 21 through 28. Knowing why these things in heaven were given to Moses to copy is crucial information. It's one of the big whys of scripture. Why did God want them copied? Well, I'll help you. They're portraits of God. They say something. They're testimonies of him and there's a, that of his character and who he is. There's testimonies for the angels and there's testimonies for mankind. That's a quick answer and it's not in, not uh, complete. Now we have Judges 19. Actually, Judges 20. I can't do it all. Dang it. I can just give you pieces because Terry's complaining. Says, but let me say this. Don't blame Terry. It would be prudent to begin Judges 20 by reminding everything, everybody of the event that traced us, or the traceable to a cause, the event that causes Judges 20. That's Judges 19. And that's the vile thing done by men, the certain men, the sons of Belial. Remember that from last week? There are those who are among the commentators that define Belial as a condition. They say Belial means a condition. It's a worthlessness. It's rebelliousness. It's lawlessness. It means having no rising. In other words, no resurrection. That's interesting. Others cite Second Corinthians 6.15. And what accord has Christ with Belial? None is the inferred of the rhetorical. Belial is at 2 Corinthians 6.15 held in contrast with Christ. And the implication is, is that he's a person. So I have the position that Belial is a person. Sons of Belial are not necessarily uh, genetically linked to him. But he exists. 
And 2 Corinthians 6.15 is clearly a New Testament complement of Judges 19.22. It provides commentary. Belial is sometimes rendered Baalile, which that means he's Satan. And thus Satan is the preferred application of 2 Corinthians uh, 6.15. Belial is also given consideration as being the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. And the ancient Jewish writings identify Belial as a certain angel who fell with Satan. So, Belial, there's dispute and it abounds. And I side with those, again, that conclude that Belial actually is a person. I've said here to read Judges 19, 26 through 30 to re- so that we would remember it. I don't know how much time I've got. A couple of minutes. Can I do it? I think I can. So, let's try. Remember this story. The story is, in, uh, man, I don't even, I don't know what to say. It's just a. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning, opened the door of the house and went out to his way to go his way. There was his concubine, his harlot, fallen at the door. Fallen means dead of the house with her hands clutching on the threshold. Cover that last week. And he said to her, get up. She made it to the door. Get up and let's us get going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his harlot of the concubine and divided her into 12 pieces limb by limb and sent her throughout all the territories of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said no such deed had ever been done. They're not talking about the piece that they got. They're talking about what the piece contained. No such deed had been done are seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. What was done to this woman, the harlot of the master, since Israel had left Egypt, no one had ever seen it. Each tribe was given evidence of what the sons of Belial did to her. Plundered her is what the words say. The master sent the evidences to every tribe. Obviously, he had messengers to do that, so the master has messages. Messengers, witnesses, if you will, who will testify testify of the vile change, things that were done to this woman, Judges 19.24 and 20.10. The master knew immediately when he saw the woman that war was now going to have to happen. War was necessary. The sons of Belial must be killed. So the master knew that something so horrible had happened that it was going to, he would have to kill the sons of Belial. Consider what's hidden in all of that. The master, recognizing the extraordinary level of evil that had been done, never seen since the exodus, unprecedented evil since the exodus. But nonetheless, everyone knew it. As soon as they saw the pieces, they said, we know what that is. We know what they did. And that's the context. So now, just a little bit. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead, and the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. So the Lord is there. Mizpah is a reference to Jacob and Laban in Genesis. And they made a pact there, a watchtower. And the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers came who drew the sword. 400,000. That's what getting one of these pieces meant. Remember, there's 12 of them. How many tribes? Benjamin a tribe? 
Now the children of Benjamin heard the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. Then the children of Israel said, tell us, talking to the master, how did this wicked deed happen? So the master, the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead plundered Israel. I'm sorry, I plundered my concubine so that she died. Know the meaning. Not just the parts. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look! What's he saying to them? Look at your pieces. Just look at it. Look what they did. Cut her into 12 pieces. How big is each piece? Every piece that he handed out somehow was evidence of something incredibly evil that had never been seen before since the Exodus. Look, all of you children of Israel, now give it your advice and counsel here and now. So all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go back to his tent, nor will we turn back into his house. And now this thing is which we will do to Jebeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand to make provisions for the people. That when they come to Jebeah and Benjamin, they may repay all the vileness that had been done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has occurred among you? Now therefore deliver up the men, the sons of Belial, who are in Jebeah, that we may put them to death and remove the evil from Israel. But the children of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Instead, the children of Benjamin gathered together from the cities of Jebeah to go to battle against the children of Israel. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword. That's 26,000 against how many? 400,000. Oh, but wait. And from their cities at that time, the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword. Besides the inhabitants of Jebeah, who numbered 700 select men. Among all the people were 700 select men who were left-handed. That means ambidextrous. Everyone could sling a stone and hit a hair and not miss with either hand. Now besides themselves, besides Benjamin, the men of Israel numbered 400,000 men who drew the sword. And all of these were men of war. So I have men of war going up against 26,700. Who won? Benjamin won for a while. God says, send Judah first. Why does Judah go first? Because of Judah and Tamar. So you're back in Genesis. They wanted all the sons of Belial put to death. Their evil was so incredible. And so all of Israel arose as one. None would go back to his house. All the people knew the evil. All they had to do was look at the peace. How did they know? They'd never seen it, but they knew it when they saw it. I should note that the sons of Belial are depicted in ancient books as grotesque 
and chimeric, being animal and man. It's not necessarily accurate, but it is Genesis 6. It's poetic license, perhaps, but it's very interesting. The legend of Belial is creatures of great evil and mixtures of kinds are contaminated. Noah was not contaminated. And the verdict is announced. This is a, this is a legal procedure, isn't it? That Benjamin would not listen. Benjamin would not execute the sons of Belial. Incredibly wicked. But they would not execute them. What's the obvious question? Why not? Why not? That becomes the key point again. Yay, another key point. What could possibly be their reasoning? These guys were unbelievably evil. The tribe of Benjamin said, no. We're not going to kill him. And you're not going to kill him either. We're going to come out and kill you instead. What's their reasoning? All of Israel rose as one, but not Benjamin. What did the sons of Belial provide to the tribe of Benjamin? And we get a glimpse of that in the details of the battle. Benjamin garries at Jebeah. Benjamin has 26,000 infantry. I might have said 27,000, but it's 26,000. Jebeah, the sons of Belial, have 700, 700 ambidextrous who could sling a stone, not miss. And being somewhat mathematical, I would naturally assume that the 400,000 infantry would overrun the 26,700. Especially in those days, it's a sword fight. But it's not a sword fight. The Benjamites didn't think the 400,000 could take them. Otherwise, why would they fight? The math is ridiculous. But they said, no, we got this. Why did they have it? They got 700 guys. Who are these 700? What did they look like? What could they do? Why did they plunder that woman? How did they do it? What were they after? Why wouldn't the Benjamites say, we will kill them and remove the evil? This is about removing the evil. Where am I now? Cleansing heavenly things, earthly things. And the Jebeans and the Benjamites kill 40,000 Israelites. The first two battles. 40,000. And the implication is that not a single Benjamite or son of Belial was killed. It was a massacre. And Israel wept. And Israel, by the way, has the Ark of the Covenant, the copy. They have the Ark. And the the Jebeah 700 are slaughtering them like their children. And they wept before the Lord. The priest came out and said, what can I do? What can I do? And God said, I will deliver them to you tomorrow. Isn't that interesting? It reminds me of the Pharaoh. He's got frogs everywhere. He's buried in frogs. Moses says, I get rid of him. He says, okay, tomorrow. But God had a reason. He had an order. Not the first battle, not the second battle. The third battle. Why did 40,000 soldiers die of the Israelites? What explains all of this? Why does God have to intervene? Why does Judah go first, Genesis 38, Tamar? It's Terry's fault, I would finish that. And she said, no. So you'll have to come next week where there's no football. There'll be a lot more daylight. It'll be much warmer or not. 
And there we'll finish that part of that story. You have to rise in order to be dismissed.